Um, but, you know, the whole market started in a coffee shop face to face and there's very much that pervasive culture. Yeah. But my question always is, is are customers willing to pay for that inefficiency? And I think yeah. more and more when you're given an alternative, um, people will vote with their with their wallets. And then the question is, can they change quickly enough to avoid extinction? On today's show, we're talking to Matt Hodges-Long, the chair of InsureTech UK and CEO and founder of Track My Risks. And we're discussing the effect of the pandemic on the insurance market and how data is playing a pivotal role in that industry. This is Tech Talks. It's your twice-weekly tech podcast with myself, David Savage, where we bring you interviews with tech leaders and share a bit of industry news. Joining me today, welcoming Akish. Uh, sweltering away as the mini heat waves strikes. I can't believe that you're wearing a shirt. I'll be perfectly honest. I am. Yeah, I am wearing a shirt, and uh, <laughs> I'll be honest. I've got shorts on underneath. So uh, business up top, you know, beer garden down bottom. Um, I think that's the same for. I mean, I got a t-shirt on, but I also have shorts. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got. I got what could be loosely described as some tech through the post today. Oh, another delivery. All right. What, what's that then? A new pair of running sunglasses that are okay. apparently no, bound, no no slip. They're incredibly loud. Okay, for for everyone who can't see this, they are, what what color are they? Orange with some bright orange mirrored lenses. Is it mirrored blue lenses? Mirrored lenses. Right. They are they are Larry. <laughs> <laughs> you you almost you almost have to be a good runner to pull that off, don't you? Mate, I, I'm hoping that lockdown does end soon because I'm going to stop making random online purchases. That I probably yeah. Don't need. True. At least you've got your product this time, and uh, and not some face masks, which is uh, that's very true. I've I've yeah. got the actual thing that I I ordered, not face masks from China. Yeah, exactly. Uh, our guest today, anyway, our guest today is Matt Hodges Long, the chair of InsureTech UK, the founder of Track My Risks. We're going to be talking all about insurance, so we will dive straight into that interview, and then myself and Akish will be back with some commentary afterwards. On today's show, we are talking to Matt Hodges-Long. Matt, you're the CEO and co-founder of Track My Risks, and you're a founding council member and operations chair at InsureTech UK. This must be an interesting time in both of those in both of those roles, uh, given given the interest. Well, given the pandemic and everything else that's going on right now. It's certainly been a busy few months. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, we're, we're sort of coming off off that now. We, we're starting to return back to normal a bit, but we're not quite sure what that normal will look like. Uh, but uh, the the old ways are starting to return. Yeah, absolutely. But it has been uh, nuts for a few months at least. It's interesting you say that we're kind of beginning to return to normal, but you're not entirely sure what normal is because it's kind of it is that it's all been thrown up in the air a little bit. And whilst the world does feel like, you know, the shops are open again, we're still not in offices and there's still this kind of confusion over social distancing and what's going to be kind of permitted by the government. So it is, it is difficult to know exactly what normal looks like, right? Yeah. I think in terms of clarity of communications, I mean, I think it would be sort of two out of 10 could do better. Um, I think most people I talk to are are really not sure of what the the rules are um, or whether those rules are the right ones or are effective or are grounded in any kind of science. So it is it is a strange time and it's very difficult for businesses, I think, to sort of plan their future and pick through. Um, talking to one client yesterday that have got about 800 people in a, in a building down in Bristol or would normally have 800 people in the building. And uh, they were sort of saying, well, we're not quite sure what we're going to do because if everybody goes back in the social distancing, then we don't have enough space. We're not sure whether people that are now used to working remotely or from home 
will actually want to go back and can we force them? Um, and there's all these sort of conversations going on and it's, it's, there's really no clarity over what two or three months time will look like. So it's very difficult to actually make any kind of meaningful decisions other than let's wait a bit longer and see what happens really. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean that that kind of trade-off of risks kind of dives drives right to the heart rather of of the insurance industry. Um I suppose the reason why I thought it would be interesting initially to kind of bring you on the show was uh the view, you know, get to get kind of get a holistic view of what's going on with insurance. Everyone is aware that huge amounts of people have had holidays cancelled and lots of people are now sitting on a in fact, I myself am sitting on a holiday booking wondering do we cancel it? Do we rearrange? Do we wait and see what happens with the with the travel company? What does that mean? You know, um, but when we got into conversation, it was far more than just that and and that impact that that uh, was worth talking about. Um, you you mentioned before we hit record that your dog is in the room and is quietly snoring, uh, and that actually pet insurers have found that this is a real boom time for them. Yeah, apparently I. I- talking to one of the InsurTech UK members that are a, a very large pet insurer that you may have seen on the television advertising recently that there's been a, a boom in um, pet acquisition um, as a result of the lockdown. So I think one of the considerations if you look at things like puppies is that you need to spend quite a lot of time at home training them and stopping them from eating the sofa and all those sorts of things. <laughs> and um, it's been a perfect time to do it. So I think if you're in the pet insurance market or you know, you're a breeder of puppies, then COVID-19 has probably been quite a boon um, until, I guess, you you run out of stock. Um, And then there's other industries that have taken a real hit. You know, if you're in the travel insurance market, then that hasn't been a a very good few months. So um, there are winners and losers in all of these sorts of things. But generally, uh, in insurance, if you can price a risk, you can deliver product. Um, But there has been... I think probably this this pandemic risk has been not overlooked, but was excluded um, mm. in the thinking of a lot of firms and in in the minds of a lot of customers that it's not something that really registered on most firms' risk radar. Um, and now that's seeing its way through the courts. So there's a test case going on at the moment where um, the regulator is effectively taking the insurance industry through the courts to um, understand what the precedent needs to be for business interruption. So there's a, there are winners and losers all the way through, um, and there will be a lot of time spent in court with lawyers to try and work out uh, who's responsible for paying paying the bill from all of this. Look, I, I, I would imagine that a huge amount of insurance companies are are looking to data to try and help them through this period. But I know that you in particular think that the industry hasn't always been brilliant at collecting and understanding data. Have you seen a greater application of technology to try and help collect that data over this period of time? Or has it been a case that there's a lot of firms trying to play catch up perhaps? I think the the general trend is for, for better data collection, um, data enhancement to be able to price risk better and help organizations manage risk better so Mm -hmm. it all starts with that understanding i think it's probably too early to say from a covid perspective at the moment that that that's caused immediate changes i think it will lead to structural changes but this movement was going on before and i think it will accelerate um the the pace of change because the the industry is moving into what they call a hard market so that's where um, there is less capital being put into the 
um, insurance market or less people wanting to risk their capital in the insurance market. So rates go up. Um, and it also happens when uh, claims are coming in that weren't forecast. So if I'm an insurance company and I've now got to um, make adjustments to my capital reserves because I'm having to pay a lot of potentially COVID claims that I wasn't expecting, um, then I need to get that money from somewhere. And that will be, I need to put my rates up, my premiums up. So generally we see an inflationary pressure in the industry. So the one of the ways that you counteract that um, as a consumer is by giving data or explaining your risk better to the market so they can be more aggressive about how they price. So um, if we think in young drivers in their cars, for example, where you have black box telematics, where that's a box that's actually measuring the way you're driving behavior. Um, so for example, if you're 18 years old and the statistical model says that you will drive in a certain way, you will have this many crashes on average, therefore you need to be priced at £2,000 per year. What you're doing with the black box is saying, um, the insurer is effectively saying, well, we'll insure you as a 20-year-old um, in terms of our assumption, and then the black box will either prove or disprove our pricing assumption. So actually, if you then prove that you drive like a 22-year-old, then they've got further scope to reduce your pricing. But they've actually got some objective measure of your behavior. And um, so I think a lot more of that will start in a hard market where the insurers are looking to understand the risks better. Um, and then that's where the technology providers come in because they're the ones that can actually capture that information in a, um, a cost-effective way. Um, and they can pipe that into the insurers to help them with their decision-making. So that's where a lot of the tech focus is at the moment. So there's a an element which is all about sort of a beautiful user journey and interacting with an app to, to buy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other bit behind the scenes, the sort of less sexy bit, if you like, or the less obvious bit is how we understand in data what a risk is composed of and therefore how it can be priced. And that's the sort of the side of the fence I'm involved in personally. Now you kind of you 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 talk about the black box there, and I suppose that's a really nice, clear example for people to get their heads around. But um you talked about an acceleration of technology uh, across the market. Are there examples where a lot of this discussion has been going on for some time, but you really have seen marked progress made in the last three months in markets where they hadn't really adopted it, where it's not as obvious as the black box. Yeah, the, the adoption. So the, so the caveat I should make is that the insurance industry generally moves at a glacial pace. Yeah. Um, so it's probably 10 to 15 years behind the sort of the, the fintech banking market. So there's discussions at the moment around open insurance, whereas we've Open banking is a thing. Um, we the competition has been opened up um, in in the banking markets to a degree. With challenger banks, we haven't really seen sort of challenger insurers, as an example. Um, so I think in terms of concrete adoption, uh, there is quite a bit of AI work going on at the moment around large risk areas like marine, cargo, those sorts of real difficult things you know the the ai for managing uh, the insurance of of uh, drone flights for commercial drone operators um and then another big area of change at the moment which is accelerating is what they call parametric insurance which is insurance products that are the payment of of the insurance policy or the payout of the insurance policy has a parametric trigger so a flight is delayed 
equals a payment automatically with with no human intervention. Um, flood water reaches a certain height on the outside of a building. The sensors and the weather data confirm that that's correct. A payment is made. So a, a much more efficient way of actually delivering the, the insurance buying journey and payment journey, but also the data that underpins the modeling mm. um, is dynamic and algorithmic. So those sorts of changes, but they're not ones that most people outside of the industry would overtly see or understand how they're generated. So the momentum is building. Has the dam been broken yet? No, but we're moving in the correct direction. Now, you 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 alluded to the fact that there um, are some legal proceedings going on. And I know when we were preparing for this conversation, you, you talked about the fact that some large insurers are now being dragged through the courts by disgruntled business customers. What what exactly is that in relation to? What, what What's triggered that and, and, and what's the impact that's, that's going on at the moment? So that particular one is due to um, what they call business interruption um, cover, mm-hmm. uh, where in a policy it will say, Effectively, if your business can't trade under various circumstances, um, we will pay an amount. Typically, it's a a year's worth of lost profits. It depends how it's worked or additional costs of working um, to you as the policyholder. So the COVID-19 pandemic hit. The government said, for example, bars and clubs need to close. Um, There is ambiguity in the wording of those policies as to whether that triggers a payment under the business interruption policy. So that needs to be tested. Um, and it's significant. There are thousands of companies that are caught in that situation that uh, believe that um, they're due a payment from their insurers. And there are a significant number of insurers that believe the opposite is true. And that needs to be tested through the courts. Um, but it's not helping Regardless of the, the the legal rights and wrongs of all of this, it's not helping from a reputational perspective in terms of the perception that insurers are happy to take your money but never want to pay it out to you. Whereas actually, the vast majority of the money that insurers take in is paid back out in claims, especially in, in things like motor insurance, where normally more money is paid out in claims than is taken in in premium because it's such a competitive market. So the, there are structural problems. And this is another point of where technology needs to come to bear. So typically in uh, business insurance, about 40 pence in the pound that you pay in premium is lost in what they call frictional costs. So only 60 pence is available to potentially pay back out in claims. So 40% of it gets lost. There's so much friction in all the different mouths to feed along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's been a, a competition and markets authority review into that as to whether that's fair. And I think that will trigger accelerated change where you need to sort of automate a lot of that buying journey to bring that 40% expense ratio, as they call it, down. If I just switch attention very quickly uh, uh, to track my risks, um, it's it's an online platform uh, for risk management uh, accessible to businesses through automation. There's been a lot of talk about automation and businesses automating aspects. You know, I think there was a there was a report by EY, wasn't there, towards the beginning of this lockdown, where they suggested that almost 50% of businesses were going to look at aspects of automation. And this would appear to be the kind of automation that makes quite a lot of sense in an enterprise setting, as opposed to the kind of stuff that Elon Musk, Musk tends to talk about. Have, have you seen a pickup in, in people interested in in actually getting a better understanding of their risk and, and their data during this period? Yeah, the, the, definitely we're coming back into that 
swing now. So, so prior to COVID nineteen, it was always difficult to engage people in conversation about this kind of subject. Um, generally, it's not the thing that most people jump out of bed in the morning thinking about. Um, COVID nineteen then hit, and it was very much everybody was in crisis management mode. Uh, and now, as we start to return back to a level of normality. Um, people are thinking, well, actually, we learned a lot during that period. We do need to get more organized. We had just simple things, problems accessing data because certain sort of back office tasks in a lot of companies were, were left on servers locally. People moved out of the office and you've suddenly there's certain drives you can't access. And there's quite a lot of um, – I always tend to think that most people would be cloud-based, work from anywhere – dynamic there's a lot of sort of old legacy that exists within businesses mm -hmm. that has been exposed um so yes it does really what we're about is bringing really good practice to the mass market so quite often we'll work with groups of tree surgeons or roofing contractors through their national association around how do you manage risk within a, a roof tiling business, for example, but we're doing that at scale for hundreds or thousands of companies at the same time. So it's about demystifying a lot of this and making it accessible. Um, back to the black box analogy again, uh, which is if we understand as a platform what the key risks are in a certain business, we know what the controls around those risks should be. We can ask for that evidence of it and we can remind people when they need to do things again. So they don't inadvertently sleepwalk into a problem. Mm. So it's not about those individual companies being experts at managing risk. It's about applying the right templated, um, intelligent structure to that business and then saying, look, if you follow these steps, you'll be in a much better position than you would have been as if, if you if you were unaware. So it's a, it's um, dumbed down is the word I usually use, but it isn't. Um, we don't really work with companies that have PhD risk managers running a process with really complex risk matrices and all that sort of thing. We're more about, yeah. have you got a copy of this? Can you evidence that you've done that? Because if you can't, the regulator's going to, or the health and safety executive or whoever is going to throw you in jail or fine you out of existence or whatever it is. So take this medicine. So we're really about simplifying that whole kind of mythical process that is usually surrounded by a lot of jargon. And look, if we if we just have a think about the future for for a second, and I know it's difficult to do so, but you said that, that insurance moves at a glacial pace. Do you think the the outcome of this is going to be that the larger legacy employers have to move quicker, or is it more likely that they're going to continue to be disrupted by insurtech uh, newcomers to the market? I think the in terms of disruption has been a really difficult one because the, there are there is so much regulation and so many capital requirements around being an insurer that it is actually very difficult for a small company to genuinely disrupt. Mm. But I think the technology that companies like ours are creating is dis is a disruptive influence um, on those businesses, but more for them to partner and to accelerate their development as opposed to somebody coming in and rendering them extinct. I think where the big challenge is from technology, for example, are the large markets like Lloyd's of London. I think they they are under significant threat from technology because they are trying to modernize, um, but they are very expensive. So I think they are far more wide open to a, a technological threat, be that a Google or an Amazon um, or another market around the world that embraces technology. Um, so they are trying to 
manage um, placement of risks using digital, but they've got a very um, slow moving or resistant audience that they're working with that have always put the suits and ties on and gone into the city of London every day and like to trade face to face. Um, Feel the bars around Leadenhall. Absolutely. Although, yeah, that's been um, <laughs> supposedly it's a, there's no drinking allowed anymore, but uh, we'll see. Um, but, you know, the whole market started in a coffee shop face to face and there's very much that pervasive culture. Yeah. But my question always is, is are customers willing to pay for that inefficiency? And I think yeah. more and more when you're given an alternative, um, people will vote with their with their wallets. And then the question is, can they change quickly enough to avoid extinction? Look, Matt, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for sharing some insight. Uh, I hope that your own business continues to go from strength to strength during this period and that we do get back to some kind of normality reasonably soon. Uh, so yeah, thanks for your time and hopefully talk to you soon. I hope so. Thanks, David. Cheers. Right, I'll, I'll be honest, kind of listening to this, it's the unsexy side attack that we often kind of don't talk about. When, when we're talking about um, technology, we often talk about the user journey. We often talk about how important it is to make sure that uh, there's market product fit and, and, the, and that users are taken on that journey with you. And, and that's very much where development is these days. And here's something where it's like, nah, data, data, data. Uh, the whole point about tech within insurance is it can capture data. That's the strength of it. That's where the industry's going. And it's not that it's unsexy, but it's it's the less glamorous, it's the more back-endy stuff, but actually it's underpinning, oh, sorry, underpinning this real move towards automation. And when we talk about uh, automation and enterprise and you listen to Matt speak, it all makes perfect sense where where automation can really help. Yeah, exactly. And I, I thought I thought it's actually quite a good eye-opener into, like you said, away from the, the sexy, glamorous, you know, cutting edge products and front front yeah. end user design, yeah, bright orange exactly. sunglasses. This was very much stripped back, you know, not old school because it's it's the kind of engine behind everything, but it was the very it was the raw side of we wouldn't have any of the funky good looking stuff if we didn't have the you know the the engine behind it or the, yeah. the catalyst to kind of push everything and 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 present everything. So I, th- I thought it's yeah. Um, it just goes. It's a. It's a bit of a, an eye opener for everyone who just thought that the funky tech and the bright colours and you know the 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 funky capabilities isn't the only bit of technology out there. It's still very much data driven um, at the centre of it. And this idea that data is only going to become more important. So because it's a hard market, less capital is going to be risked, and therefore um, with more unforeseen claims as a, as a as a as a consequence of the pandemic you know where that where is that money going to come from if if, if the capital is not going to be as, as 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 heavily risked and you've got to pay out more well then you've got to be really competitive and quite mm. bold in the market with the products you're putting out there um and i don't I, look you probably know more about insurance than i do but obviously I, you know i'm glad that matt used the the black box insurance um as as an example because that is one that everyone can understand but it does make then sense around why data is so important to these um, huge organizations and how it can really help them through what is going to be a very challenging time. Yeah. And, and also the consumer as well, I think. Like, just going back on that black box analogy, I mean, I was probably in the just the era before 
the the whole black box thing came out. But I remember my younger sister when she first got her car and and passed the driving test and all that sort of stuff. She had a black box in her car for a couple of years. Um, mm. Because I think it just allowed consumers to get the best and the most competitive price for them. Whereas I remember when I was 18, going back again to car insurance, using that as an example, I paid, you know, I think my car was worth about £700. But I think my first insurance as a, a proper name driver on there was about four grand. So, mm-hmm. you know, from, from that side of things, it was only a, a, a Citroen Saxo, you know, going back back a few years or 10 years but um i think not only does that allow companies to be competitive but i think that the consumer we will then suddenly actually have insurances that will be very much kind of aligned to what our needs are and and obviously making sure that the payouts and the premiums can be managed um especially if we look at if you know we are to go into a recession and you know, look at things like life insurances as well. You know, people want to make sure that they are fully kind of, you know, covered for for them or, or their loved ones, um, you know, should kind of anything happen, but also ones that they could afford and they're not having to mm-hmm. go out of pocket to then save for a rainy day or an accident or whatever later on. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough time for insurance. Um, definitely. I was, I, was, the interview. I was very surprised to hear him say that, insurance is 10 or 15 years behind fintech i didn't think it it was that kind of a gap and to hear that from someone who obviously has his finger on the pulse was was quite an eye-opener and and i suppose when he said you know you you, you've got challenger banks but you don't really have any challenger insurance companies at first i was like but there's loads of there's loads of insure techs out there but Mm. they do work with the legacy insurers rather than take on the legacy insurers there's not I suppose there's not an equivalent Monzo, uh, you know, Monzo or or, or Revolut. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's interesting to hear him say, you know, Google and Amazon are actually the big threats to the to the legacy insurers, and they have to change quickly to avoid being extinct. And again, if it's all underpinned by data, well, what do we know that the big tech companies have more than anybody else? It's data. Mm, exactly. And also, I think. I don't know if insurance is such a big market for a lot of the times you get these challenger banks, they'll go after one specific segment of the market, you know, so they might go for the, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, segment or the age group of 18 to 30 year olds or something like that. You know, if we look at some of these challenger banks that have started up with what they do and the apps and cashbacks, all these sorts of things. With insurance, you're pretty much having to go. Anyone and everyone has some sort of insurance on them, whether it's car, home, contents, life, whatever. So I think because it's such a mass market, I almost think there's a massive risk. I mean, I don't know. I've never tried it, but I think it's a massive risk to take on the the Lloyds of London, the old school, Liverpool, Victoria, Aviva, LG, you know, these sorts of people. I think it's just um, it would almost be a massive risk for organisations where banks you know tend to to kind of take it on i mean i don't think we've had a bank yet that's taken on the whole mortgage market have we or or you know some sort of uh challenger building society um, or something. Well, there is um atom bank offers right, yeah, mortgages yeah. but yeah it's it's not it's yeah, quite rare. exactly so I, I think if if i was to compare it i might be wrong here but I, i'd compare it to to that of some sort but um yeah just out of interest on this point that uh, pet insurance has been one of the big winners of lockdown. Have you considered getting yourself a 
a four-legged friend, or I suppose not even just four-legged. I, I won't be. I won't be narrow in my view of pets. A four-legged friend, Dave. I've been concentrating more on getting myself a two-legged friend, being a single guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, pet insurance can help you out there, mate. Yeah, no, I don't think I need pet insurance. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but yeah, no, I I haven't considered that too fair. It's, it's just, um, yeah, no, I haven't considered um, getting that. But it, it's it's crazy how pet insurance booming. You wouldn't. I've seen a lot of puppies around. Yes, yeah. so many people with new puppies walking in their in their families, and I kind of understand uh, mm. it does make sense. Although there's going to be a lot of of new dogs in families who, when eventually people aren't at home as much, that's going to be quite a difficult transition. Um, anyway, yeah. this isn't really pet psychology corner, is it? So, no, <laughs> <laughs> I think dog walkers are going to be absolutely, you know, minted, minted, market. That's in, your yeah. market, yeah, dog walkers. You know, however that works out, but I mean. Yeah, there's a blue market. There's a there's definitely something to to venture out into. Yeah. <laughs> right. We will uh, take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome to the second part of the podcast. Uh, second part, obviously, much shorter than the first part because we deal with topics that sometimes we struggle to get our heads around um but we've got an article here from the verge uh andrew yang is pushing big tech to pay users for data let me explain this to you akish because i know that this is blind and you haven't got a clue what you're looking at here yeah but um Andrew Yang wants people to get paid for the data they create on big tech platforms like Facebook and Google with a new project launching on Monday he believes can make happen. So Andrew Yang um, is based in California. Uh, he's uh, trying to establish data as property, uh, sorry, pro- data as property rights under privacy laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA. Um, so basically, uh, we're completely outgunned by tech organizations. Yang told The Verge, we're just presented with these terms and conditions. No one ever reads them. You just click on them and hope for the best. And unfortunately, the best has not happened. Absolutely. We know that's the case. And what he's basically proposing is that um, you sign up to this platform, you put in the email addresses uh, and you put in your PayPal details and he tells you who's making money out of your data. And uh, in the event that you can begin to reclaim some of that monetary value, they pay you into PayPal. And the big idea being that if you start getting like 20, 30, 40 dollars, you start saying to your mates, hang on a minute, I'm getting paid for my data. There's some value attached to it. And that will create a ripple effect that that that, that creates the change. Um, because at the minute, these companies like Facebook have offered um, study groups around kind of, they, they've wanted to very specific data to see how stuff works. And they have paid people for like, like for that, almost like uh, psychology students used to pay mm. you to be their guinea pigs at university. Yeah. Um, but at the minute, there isn't really any mass um, tipping of the balance back in the way of consumers, and given our conversation about insurance before and how important data is, I think I think this is on trend and quite interesting. Yeah, hundred percent. Is that just for California and the US, or is that UK? It would be at the minute, but I mean, it does yeah. sound very similar, obviously, to GDPR, where it you does, can yeah. put a subject matter, um, mm. a subject access request in, and say, "I would like to know if you've got access to my data and, and how yeah. much you've got." But it's and taking also, it a step further by saying we'll pay you for it. So like royalties, as if I was a, uh, as if I was some sort of an artist. You know, so every yeah, I time, suppose so. I, I, guess, I guess it's like that, right? So every time, yeah. I don't know, someone uses your data, you get what, X amount just chucked into your PayPal. I'd be up for well, that, we, to be honest. It, 
if we think about the insurance companies needing data to underpin aggressive products to help them make money, mm. well, yeah. why shouldn't I get a cut of that? If mm. they're making money out of my data indirectly, yeah. because they're going to need lots of data sets to go, here's an insurance product that makes sense. Yeah. Why shouldn't you go, well, hang on a minute. Without my data, your product wouldn't be as efficient. You wouldn't be able to make money, so pay me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or get some sort of a subsidized you know whatever yeah. in, into the into the product i think that's a great idea to be honest because it, it would also be good to see how how many decisions or how many products or bits of technology are actually influenced by people of a similar kind of nature or profile um you know to someone so a 16 17 year old person or a 55 year old person like my mum who uses facebook i'm sure she wouldn't know you know what effect she could have on organizations and if if that can be an extra you know kind of thing where and, and I'm, I'm then also sure this mm. is the other thing people would then start having accurate data and would then also maybe the the usage would be a lot more you know cleaner so if we then go back to things like trolling and things like cyberbullying, that sort of stuff that might actually force people to then reveal their true identities because then they think oh hang on I could maybe earn some money here. And mm. even if it is X amount, then it's something's better than nothing. And we might then see a steep decline to the um, online harassment and bullying stuff yeah. that we've also had in the last yeah. few years. And it'll be rooted in law as well, which will, will help that. I suppose they, I suppose you could try and draw a kind of a very loose analogy with, with countries where they have um, legalized drugs or made it a medical issue rather than a criminal issue. It does mm. force it out of the underground. It helps it to be regulated. People become mm. more open you end up having less issues, I suppose. That might be a really tenuous analogy. But he, he talks about the fact, you know, it's the first day that when people get paid their dividend um, uh, through DDP for all, I will cr- I will put a link just so you know what I'm all about, but DDP is Data Dividend Protection, uh, Project, sorry, the Data Dividend Project is what this is called. So the first day they get paid their dividend through DDP for all, it's going to be such a great day because you can imagine thousands, even tens of thousands of Americans getting paid something into their PayPal or Cash App, Yang said. Even if it's 20 50 or $100, they'll tell their friends and we can change practices industry-wide. Very good idea. <clears throat> Look, if Joe Linton can score, anything can happen. <laughs> in front of uh, in front of no people at St James's Park. But anyway, Mate, if he can score, Andrew Yang can change the world when it comes to data. All right, we're all good. We're all good. <laughs> maybe people, maybe we can stop using that for Trump votes as well, uh, and actually use the data more sensibly. But anyway, that's a separate podcast. <laughs> Well, look, in, enjoy your call. I know you've got coming up soon, which you've got dressed up for. Um, yeah. You look, yeah. you look the part. The listeners might not know, but you look the part. And uh, we'll be back with you uh, when everyone's very sweaty at the end of this, this week, which is uh, looking like it's going to be a scorcher. <laughs>